The following was recorded by the Zen Society, located in Shemong, New Jersey, near Philadelphia. Please visit us at thezensociety.org. Dharma, incomparable, profound, minutely subtle, pervading the entire universe, revealing right here, right now, is rarely experienced, even in hundreds, thousands, millions of eons. We can see it, we can listen to it, we can express and know it. May we completely understand and actualize this Tathagata's true meaning. The first lesson on the road to realizing and actualizing one's true self is that one is not who one thinks who one is. Each person, without exception, has a fictitious past each of us is precisely an imposter. In setting off in search of true identity, one steps into a labyrinth, a maze, a tunnel of love, a hall of mirrors, a derelict graveyard, a long neglected archeological site. Whatever metaphor one uses, Part of the task is to uncover and to confront one's accumulated mass, distorted images, and multiple false identities at cross purposes. One must peel away not only the mask one knows so well, those that one thinks one is wearing now, but a host of other masks those thought of and those never even considered, never imagined, the one wears in the course of one's life. Most of the masks we wear have been there longer than we can even remember. We became imposters in childhood, and we continued to wear them throughout our lives, and most of us will wear them to our graves. Among the obstacles lying in the way of knowing who we truly are, preventing us from exposing our false identities and uncovering our true identity, preventing us from experiencing our birthright, aliveness, vitality, and joy, is a sentimental and romantic notion about the past, in particular about our childhood, that time when the most intractable, the most unyielding of all false identifications, identifications with our parents, were laid down in our psyches. Good evening. Good evening. I wonder if I could have you all kind of like move to the front so I can see you better, because we're going to get intimate tonight. Thank you. And thank you for coming out tonight. 
not too soon after my daughter was born, and especially as she began to uh, crawl and walk and move about and speak language and, and all of those things. And those of you who are parents more than likely can relate to this. Parents came in droves to offer me their advice and wisdom of parenting. And one of the things they told me was, always remember, they're like sponges. Every one of them. They remember and they take on everything. And I remember reflecting on that immediately because nothing is more truer, not only about our children, but about each of us. And that quality of existence or quality of being referred to was true about you and I when we were children as well. We are born into this world like a clean slate, like the canvas of an artist. We are born, as the ancients talk about it, like a mirror. And anything that comes into our consciousness, we tend to reflect. We become. And what most of us fail to ever even consider is the possibility, but more likely the probability, that early on in our childhood, one of the things we became, and one of the things we continue to be throughout our lifetime, is imposters. Or as Shakespeare put it, actors on a stage. And that past karma, as the Buddhist people talk about it, that past karma, that action that existed in the past, if never fully understood, if never fully realized, and if never completed, prevents us not only from experiencing all of the aliveness and all of the fulfilling experiences available to us, but literally predetermines for us what we not only are permitted, but what we will experience in our lifetime. The activity or practice of clearing past karma is quintessential for anyone who hopes to create any kind of real future. The ancient saying that has been around for generations that if we never learn anything from the past, we are destined to repeat it in the future is true. The clearing of karma and the understanding of how not clearing it affects our daily living now and literally predetermines for us the possibilities of the future is what tonight is about. Early on in our lives, as the reading suggests to us, we take on a multitude of identities. Early on in our lives, from the moment of our birth, we are born into the world again with a clear sense of who we truly are. We are born with all of the wisdom, all of the knowledge, all of the understanding, but what we are also born with is a complete trust of our environment. In early childhood, we have no sense of cautiousness. We have no sense of suspicion. And early on in our life, we take on multitude of identities with cross purposes. And each of those cross purposes has for it, at least for tonight's conversation, a singular objective, one of survival. Somewhere in our lives, we are literally frightened out of our sense of who we truly are. And our life's purpose, our design, our reasons for why we do what we do, 
including our choices, including our decisions, and most certainly our reactions to life, all become about survival. Early on in childhood, we learn how to survive the fear that surfaces in us in those moments that we find ourselves questioning, who am I, what am I, and what is the meaning of my life? We do this early on at an unconscious level. And then as we develop into adolescence and adulthood, we find ourselves asking it in many different ways, such as, what will make me happy? Children do not ask such questions. What will make me satisfied? What will make me content? Who am I supposed to be? What should I be in life? What is the best course for my future? These questions are, again, kind of like um, disguises of the actual or original question. Who am I? We find ourselves constantly in search of our life everywhere. So, early on, we are born into the world with a clear understanding of who we truly are and what we truly are. We are born with all of the wisdom, all of the knowledge, everything we need to not only survive in life, or at least know how to survive in life, but to truly be authentic and truly be engaged in those activities and in those efforts that truly fulfill us, that sincerely fulfill us, that touch us at our deepest level. Somewhere in the course of our early childhood, psychology speaks about this as the years of our formation or conditioning. That all gets changed for us. But the Buddhist point of view of that transition, if you will, talks about it in this way. The Buddha says, someone says something to you and it hurts you. That action they committed is real. We call that pain. I say something to you, I do something to you, and there is pain. My reaction to that is different. That is to say, if moments after I say something to you that hurt you, you are still grumbling, mumbling, and tomorrow morning talking about it, and complaining about it, and casting blame and shame and guilt upon me, that is what Buddhists call suffering. When I learn that I can liberate myself from suffering, but choose to continue to live with the story about what happens, that is called ignorance. The transformation that the Buddha talked about that needs to take place is liberating ourselves from our ignorance. We liberate ourselves from this ignorance by understanding what is really going on in the mind from moment to moment. Early on in our childhood, the mind is again this pure, trusting, loving, and fully equipped canvas, ready to be shaped and formed, but it becomes, if you will, kind of like betrayed early in the childhood stages. We suddenly become these actors on the stage, as Shakespeare put it, as a means of surviving. And that survival or that need to survive, that sense of needing to survive in the world comes from a sense of not being good enough, not being as good as others may expect us to be, not fulfilling our own and other people's expectations and so forth. 
And so our life becomes about correcting that. And in correcting that, we become, and you need to hear this, whatever it is we think we need to become in order to do that. We become imposters. We become actors on the stage. And the earliest, if you will, if you were listening, false identifications, identification with our parents, kind of launches us on this path of wandering, as Hakuin Zenji said, from dark path to dark path. Karma is that action that is motivated by a particular intention. At birth, we have a singular intention. The intention is to be, to live in the world authentically, and to follow the path we were born to follow with the wisdom and the knowledge and the information of that path inherent to all of us. Somewhere in the course of our early life, that intention becomes survival. Survival of the being in a circumstance or situation that it usually begins at home, where the being suddenly identifies with other beings. The earliest identification is our identification with our parents. Whatever we identify with, we attach to. Whatever we attach to, attaches itself to us. And eventually we become. Whatever we identify with, we attach to. Whatever we attach to, attaches itself to us and we become. In that paradigm, we all became imposters. We began to live lives that again had for its singular purpose or objective, survival. How do I survive this notion that I am not good enough? How do I survive this notion that I may not achieve enough? How do I survive this notion that again, just who I am is not enough? And all of us, myself included, early on in our childhood, has some or a series of experiences in our relationships with our parents and other key figures in our lives that causes this shift to take place. That literally, as I often said, frightens us out of our very skin, frightens us out of who we truly are, and we begin to take or live a path, if you will, that becomes again and again about solely recovering, and if not recovering, surviving. The ignorance begins to shape and form itself within us by again having little understanding that this event actually even happened in our lives. So let's say tonight it is the first time that you, it has been suggested to you that you can change this. In fact, most of what's taught about karma in the West is untrue. Most of what's taught about changing karma is untrue. Most of us tend to think of karma as, if you will, this kind of written in stone predestination. But the Buddha said you can change your karma at any time. You can change your karma at any time when you know how to change your karma. And in order to know how to change your karma, you need to know the cause. And in order to change the cause, you need to understand cause and effect. 
And so again, early on in our life, when this transition from being to doing and having, and you can see this when you take a look at this, as children, we are simply present in the world. Every moment a child is fully present to the moment, to the here and now, being nothing more and no one other than themselves. When this, if you will, transition from being happens, it is a shift from living my life being in the world to living my life doing in order to have. Doing in order to have. My behavior, if you will, which dictates my karma. Karma is action. The literal translation of the word karma is action. The Buddha taught 2,500 years ago that actions grounded in intention. You need to understand that. Actions rooted in or grounded in intention is what we mean by karma. These actions create form. These form are causes and these causes create particular effects. So, every action we commit is not necessarily a karmic act. But the ones that are, the Buddha said, can be changed, or those which we may identify as bad karma, when we understand that karma is any action rooted in intention. Change the intention, the karma changes. Changes the karma, change the karma or the action, the effects change, and so forth. But if we never change the root cause of our karma, nothing changes. Early on in our life, we identify with our parents. And as a parent, learning this many years ago before I even became one, was very helpful and continues to be helpful for me at least, raising my seven-year-old daughter. From a child's point of view, from your point of view, my point of view as children, our parents are everything. Our parents literally are God for us. They have the money, they have the food, they have the house, they have the power. And when we relate to them in early childhood, we see them in this way. A child absolutely trusts 100% the parent. The child absolutely believes 100% the parent. In early childhood, we identify with our parents as the source of everything in our life. They feed us, they clothe us, they keep us safe, and so forth. They become literally godlike for us. And that is why parenting is probably one of the most crucial and important roles in life. Because the parent literally shapes and forms the child's point of view, not only about themselves, but about themself, themselves in relationship to the world. So early on, our earliest identification was rooted in our identification with our parents. Now I want to warn you that tonight is not about your parents. It is not about whether they were bad. It's not about whether they were good. It's not about whether they were right. And it's not about whether they were wrong. What you need to know, as I tell parents when I talk about parenting, is that your parents, right, wrong, or indifferent in the way they did it, absolutely love you. And that children, 
right, wrong, or indifferent about their parents, absolutely love their parents. It's just that none of us are given a manual for parenting or being part of a family when we come into the world. We should be, when I take a look at how some parents are parenting their kids, and some kids are living with their parents, but that doesn't happen for us. What tonight is about is taking responsibility for our relationship with our parents, or what I often call completing our relationship with our parents. And it doesn't matter whether your parents are alive today, doesn't matter whether you've been, you've been an adult for 50 years, 60 years, 70 years, or so forth. Completing our relationship with our parents by change, literally changes, if you will, or transforms all the karma of the past. And when we change the karma of the past, we change the karma of the present, and we change the karma of the future. Past, present, and future in one cosmic, if you will, one effort, one act of, again, being the cause in the matter rather than being the effect. When the shift moves from being in the world to doing in order to have, we move from knowing ourselves as cause in our life. And we can see that in how the discussion changes. Early on, we love our parents unconditionally. We are affectionate with them, unless, of course, we find ourselves in seriously abusive uh, households. And even then, the evidence shows that the child never stops not only wanting to love their parent, but certainly wanting to be loved by the parent. So early on in our childhood, we are being this cause in our life for everything in our life. When the transition takes place from being to doing in order to have, this sense of being responsible or being cause for the effects in my life drops away, kinds of gets suspended. That suspension is what the Buddha points to when he talks about ignorance. When he says in the second noble truth to us that the cause of our suffering is ignorance, he is pointing to that moment in our time that, go, that follows us throughout our lifetime until we wake up to it, that moment in time when we kind of suspend our awareness as being the source of everything in our lives. Now, a moment ago I said to you, Buddha taught, that when I offend you in one way or the other, either verbally or physically, what you experience in that moment is pain. That pain, yes, is a function of the, my behavior. It happened because I offended you. I did something either verbally or physically that caused that pain to happen. A few minutes later, if you will, when you are continuing to mumble and grumble and be upset and resentful and hateful and spiteful about what I did, that's called suffering. That suffering, the Buddha said, is our stuff. We are doing that. I did this to you, but you were doing that to you. That behavior is, again, part of our conditioning early on. Early on, again, in that moment in our lives, when we make the transition from being in order to uh, being to doing in order to have, 
that is uh, when the suffering that the Buddha referred to kind of like begins for us in life. And the reasons for that is when we are here, we see ourselves as the source of our satisfaction and fulfillment. We see ourselves as cause in the matter. When the shift takes place, we begin to see the world outside us. We begin to see people, places, things, circumstances, situations, objects as the source of our happiness. And thus we go in pursuit of all of that. We constantly are looking toward someone else or something else to make us happy, to make us satisfied, to make us content. This happens to us early on in childhood when we shift from being the cause in the matter to first seeing our initial or primary identification with our parents. That moment when we see our parents as the source of our happiness. When we perceive our parents as the cause for our unhappiness. When you talk to adolescents and teenagers, if you will, that's all they talk about. Either the parent is the cause for their happiness or the parent is the source of their dissatisfaction. We learn to become totally dependent upon our parents, depending on our cravings and desires. One of the reasons why Buddhism emphasizes, however in inexhaustible all desires are, I vow to extinguish them all, or the eradication of desiring, is because early on we learn to desire as a way of survival, as a means of surviving. And it becomes a habitual behavior, not an inherent quality, but a habitual behavior. Infants and children up to about the age four, psychiatry tells us, uh, infants and children, again, do not crave and desire as source of their satisfaction, as we begin to do, as I say, when we make that false identification with our parents and everyone after that, until we have completed our relationship with our parents, everyone after that who represents our parents. So for example, in psychology they talk a lot about this. The reason why the relationship between a father and a daughter, for example, is so important that that relationship is healthy and wholesome is that depending on the relationship the daughter has with the father, she will see every other man the rest of her life from that relationship. Likewise, the relationship between the son and the mother, and the mother is so essential. Because every relationship that the son has with, with a woman from that moment forward, he will see them according to and from the place of that relationship, if you will. And vice versa. Children view the world as they continue to grow in life from the place of their relationship with their parents. The father, as you again have probably read and heard, is constantly setting an example to his daughter as to what a man really is, what you can expect from men, and so forth, and vice versa. And this is true both between daughter and mother and son and father. This paradigm works the same way. Early on in our life, our entire identity of our relationship with others in the world and the world around us becomes shaped and formed 
in that primary and quintessential relationship, the relationship between us and our parents. Any questions? What happens if one of the parents like dies in that time period? Does another male step in to be that role model? No. For, Children have no sense of time, so let's say between birth and four years old, just for the sake of conversation, we'll say between birth and four years old, even if that happens, that identity shaped and formed in that period of time becomes the primary identification, no matter who else uh, shows up afterwards. Okay? Children have no sense of time, beginning and end. Okay? That part of the brain hasn't been developed yet. So in as much as, again, even in, again, I refer to abusive relationships, even where the male figure leaves the family, okay, for that child, no matter who else steps in and assumes the role of the parent or the father, for that child, the biological father is the initial identification, okay? Our initial identification in the formation years from the time of birth to uh, some say four, some have moved it to as much as seven. But at the time of birth to four, which is when I think it happens, okay, that initial identification is with our biological parents. Okay? And that identification, whether it is you know, a lifetime or is thwarted anywhere along the line, remains solid, intact, no matter what changes happen to it. No, go ahead. If you're placed for adoption, like what happens then? Is it the people who adopt you become the parental role? Or is it just like a biological kind of karma? The people who adopt you certainly become a parental role for you, and you learn from that. But if there was any experience, any you know, engagement with that biological parent, that does not just suddenly disappear. Okay. Uh, if you've, you know, I don't know, I don't know if any of these scenarios have to do with you, but I've had many people in my life who were either adopted or have gone through divorce, and even as adults, even as older adults, they still talk about their biological parent, whether it's the father or the mother. Hi. I think there are exceptions to that rule because... There are I always exceptions to every single... I think, I think it's important there's always exceptions to every rule. Because I think there are children that choose spouses sometimes that are unlike their parents yeah. for whatever reason. For survival. <laughs> Maybe so. Yeah, for survival. Uh, I can tell you that somewhere in my childhood I did exactly that. Mm -hmm. Okay, I chose an aunt as a figure for me as a mother, rather than my own, okay? Right, wrong, and different, I can tell you that happened, okay, for me. So I agree with you. And I think what you just pointed out, I failed to say, and I want to reiterate, you're correct. There's always exceptions. There's always an exception to the rule, but because the exception is rare. Because there's always um, genetics and environment mm -hmm. to take into consideration other than the parent and other influences mm -hmm. in a child's life that can be very strong 
yeah. stronger than their parents, for example. For the infant and toddler, the parents take on the role of not only two, mother and father, but the environment as well. They are the environment because they create the environment. Okay? The parents create the environment, therefore they are the environment. So if, again, in a child's mind, it's all, there's no discrimination between this, that, and this. That part of the brain has not developed yet, the ability to discriminate. That's why their love seems to be so unconditional, seems to be seamless, if you will. So that ability to discriminate between the stuff that is healthy and the stuff that isn't, if you will, uh, doesn't come until later on, sometimes in therapy, okay? Doesn't come until later on. Because again, in early childhood, that part of the brain has not been developed. But Certainly, there are numerous factors that contribute to my development and your development. The, one of the primary factors that we're talking about tonight has to do with our relationship with our parents and how we complete that relationship and make that necessary uh, recovery, if you will, which leads to reunion with our true self. Somewhere along the line, your parents my parents with me, somehow in action, in words and deeds, and some intentional, some unintentional. Like I said, this is not about their behavior, right, wrong, or different. This is about that, without exception, this happens to all of us. It happened to the Buddha, happened to Jesus, happens to all of us. Somewhere in our life, our parents behave in a certain particular way that causes, knowingly or unknowingly, this psychological and emotional shift for us. We move from just being who we truly are to being who we think we have to be in order for their approval, their love, their acceptance, and so forth. That shift we take for granted. Everyone in this room knows that happens to us. I mean, the moment I get concerned about how my parents feel about me, that shift has happened. It's happened to all of us, and everyone in this room has experienced that one time or another in their life. Taking that shift for granted is something that, again, we need to stop doing and see how important it is to complete that with ourselves, to complete that for ourselves, okay? All right? Good to see you. Nice seeing you, too. You, too. <laughs> Any other questions? Um, wouldn't you say that that shift is a biological imperative because the toddler now is a little older and more independent and knows that still the survival is going to come from the parents? I'm not clear. Say that again, maybe a little bit. Well, when you say, what did you say about biological? It seems like it would be a biological imperative for the species, for the child, to be, to identify its survival, his or her survival, with the parents. As children. As children, because that's where everything's coming from. Right. And you can't survive without that. Right. And so... But, but it doesn't stop at a uh, biological, you know, dependence. 
right. doesn't stop at a dependence simply for food and, and shelter right. and all of the other things. It becomes an emotional codependent. Yes, right. a psychological an dependence. dependence. Yeah, an so ego dependence. Right. Yeah, and that ego dependence, that shift, when we are not aware of it in our lives, shapes and for or at least shows up. We perceive it in many different ways as we begin as we continue to grow and into our adulthood. Most adults' dissatisfaction today has to do with an unconscious desire to still please, please the parents. Right. I will I, I will I will risk saying after doing this for forty two years and, and counseling and coaching thousands of people I cannot even begin to suggest the numbers of people that I have encountered whose whole life, the careers they chose, the colleges they chose, everything, even today what they're doing, still is about meeting their parents' expectation. So, I, yes, you are correct. That, that is a biological necessity to be dependent on our parents, otherwise we die, and so forth. But what happens in the human species, unlike the, the animal kingdom, in the human species, that is a, again, psychological or egocentric uh, shift that takes place. And that's what this whole spirituality is about, isn't it? Understanding the ego and how it is operating from moment to moment. And when we don't get how ego is identifies with our parents. Now remember, we're not just talking about the parent, because the parent lives in the employer, lives in the authority figure, and so forth. The culture. The culture. Literally, our relationship with our parents, however that was, shapes and forms our view of our employer, authority figures, uh, the culture, the world around us, and so forth. I mean, we have... And you can see it on television every day when you watch this whole political thing play out. We have people taking positions that have no idea why they're taking those positions. They're just taking those positions. And when you see the parent next to them, their mother or father might be at that rally with them, that's their position. You see? So the degree to which you're able to really detach from those parental expectations that run your life is the degree to which you are willing to go inside and see who you really are. Yeah, because identification is a modern term for attachment. Mm -hmm. So whatever we identify with, we attach to. Whatever we attach to, attaches to us. And until we make that detachment, until we identify that and then detach from it, we become it. We literally become our parents. I mean, how many of us in this room and how many of us have heard other people say, oh my God, I'm my mother, you know? <laughs> oh my God, I'm my father. Yes, you're right, you're right. And until you see that for yourself, and, 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 I, and I will assume, because for me it was, for me it was a, uh, much easier trans, uh, realization and awakening than it is was for most people who I teach this to, okay? So I'm going to assume it's a very painful and difficult process because, again, one of the realizations is, let's say you don't realize this until you're 50, 
one of the realizations is, is that for 50 years you've been living their life. And you don't get that back. And I think that perhaps that's why most people don't want to enter into spiritual training, because that's what it really is all about. Part of the liberating process is what you have to face. And what we have to face is that early on in our lives, as again, I will read this again, among the obstacles lying in the way of knowing who we truly are, preventing us from exposing our false identities and uncovering our true identity is a sentimental and romantic notion about the past, in particular our childhood, that time when the most intractable, the most unyielding of all false identifications, identifications with our parents were laid down in our psyches. So, so when we talk about sentimentality and romance, we're talking about this story that we have up until now told ourselves is our life. And when you come to this realization, you must face the fact that that story was all fictional. <laughs> okay, so you realize who your parents were and you choose not to um, behave that way, for example, not to become them. You've already become them. Okay, you are them. So, okay. but you you have the, but but you um, realize you're you're no longer ignorant about who they were and how they've influenced you and how they and how you are. Um, mimicking or echoing who they were. Okay, and now you have to decide who you are. How do you do that? Good question. I'll get there. Okay. Yeah, I'll get there. Any, any other questions before that? So, early on, the single most powerful and intractable identification is our identification with our parents. Laid in our psyches, it becomes literally embedded in our being nature, if you will, in the world. We attach ourselves to their ideals, to their ideas, to their desires, to their beliefs, to their opinions, etc., etc., etc. And even though we may not literally agree with them, you know, I was a rebellious type of youth, even though we may not literally agree with them, there is always that part of us that is concerned for their approval and their agreement with us, you're saying. And when our lives become about the approval or the acceptance of others, they know our lives are no longer our own. Our lives become, if you will, these survival machines with a singular and exclusive intention or objective. And that is to do and to be whatever I need to do 
and what I never, whatever I need to be to survive. And at that point, our definition of survival, again, becomes the approval and the acceptance, again, initially of our parents. But as we continue to grow and get older, it then transfers to the acceptance and approval of other people that represent our parents to us. And that could be anyone. That could be anyone. Uh, I'm sorry? I agree with that. Yeah, that could be anyone. Let's see. We transfer our, I, our, if you will, I'll call it image of our father. We transfer our image of our mother onto other women, onto other men. We transfer that. Now back to like your question, what I failed to mention, is that what also happens in that moment of death, when the parent dies, is that we go looking for them in other people. Okay? We go looking for them in other people. A friend of mine once said, most women have married their father and most men have married their mother. And that's how it works, with exceptions. With exceptions, okay? There are exceptions, okay? All right. I'm a living proof of one of them. <laughs> so early on, we sell out. We become imposters, or as uh, Shakespeare Buddha said, actors upon a stage. And as he went on to say, our action or our act is certainly filled with sound and fury, but in the end signifies nothing. Why? What was he saying there? He was again pointing to that quintessential matter of any authentic spiritual practice. The singular thing that means anything is living authentically in the world. The thing that fulfills us, that completes us, and that satisfies us is our own authenticity. And when we are living in the world with false identifications, with cross purposes, we can never expect to find that happiness and to find that fulfillment. So, to Ellen's question, this is a process, and the process begins with what we call responsibility. And this word responsibility, again, like so many other words in our culture, has been distorted to mean everything that it isn't. So and let me tell you what it isn't. Responsibility is not blame, it is not shame, it is not fault, it is not guilt. No one can make you responsible. Responsibility, real responsibility, the kind that is necessary as the first step toward liberating yourself from the past, begins with a willingness on my part, a willingness I must be willing, whether I understand it or not, and whether I see it for myself at the moment or not, a willingness on my part to experience myself, this being here, as cause in the matters of my life. As cause in the matters of my life. One of the ways that that starts to shape and form is I need to drop the story about my parents. I need to drop the story not only about my parents, 
because again, we literally transfer their power and authority onto other people. I need to drop the story that says others are the cause of my happiness or my suffering. Responsibility begins with, and another way of talking about this is the first step is to own my life. And when I own my life, I own my experience. Because if you were listening earlier, the Buddha said, when the offense comes at us, that is pain. When we are mumbling and grumbling and running a story in our head about it later on, that is suffering. The offender caused the pain. We are causing the suffering, I say. We are causing the suffering. And one of the more famous stories about this is, is his you know, scenario about you know, someone shoots an arrow and hits us. And what most of us do is we have this arrow sticking in us and the first thing we want to know is who shot that arrow, okay? And then the next thing we want to know is why did they shoot that arrow? And here we are bleeding to death with this arrow in us when the wise thing to do is to just remove the arrow and get ourselves sewed up, okay? Because it doesn't matter who and why, I say. What matters is that you survive, that you live, that you move on, if you will. So that is what he meant when he said, the offense happens and that is pain. The suffering we cause ourselves. Responsibility begins with a willingness to see myself as the cause. Not, let me say that again, not to see myself as the cause, but to choose myself as the cause in the matter of my life at every moment. Certainly things happen. People will do things, say things, natural disasters will happen, the weather will change. All of that stuff is real. There's no denial about that, okay? And that will cause us pain. But the pain can stop by simply removing the arrow and getting sewed up. The suffering goes on and on and on by my behavior, by my actions. So when our parents become God for us, at that young age, their behavior becomes our behavior. We, I like, we either mimic or I like the word echo. We echo their behavior in our lives, okay? So however our parents saw pain in their life and responded to it, we usually adopted that same behavior. So early on in our life, for most of us, I know in my household, it was always somebody else's fault. The world was doing it, uh, this guy was doing it, she was doing it, he did it, she did it, and so forth. We learn that early on in our life. When we get to that moment in our life of awakening, when we are ready to really change our karma and bring about the transformation, it begins with a willingness on my part to see myself as cause. That is what we mean by responsibility. I own my life from this moment forward. I own my thoughts, I own my words, I own my actions from this moment forward. Karma, again, are those actions rooted in a particular intention. So why is it important to make that distinction? When we find ourselves having a rough day and someone says something to us and we lose our cool with them, we, we don't mean that to be a karmic act. 
okay? When we find ourselves in the course of the day, you know, not feeling well, we lose our cool with someone and later on we come back and continue to give them pain and suffering, we call that karmic, okay? When we are intentionally behaving in ways to produce a particular result, that is what karma is. When I own my karma, the next thing that is necessary for me to do is to understand, again, as the Buddha laid down and prescribed in the Eightfold Noble Path, that behavior, right thought, right speech, right action, right effort, right livelihood, all of that was a prescription for uh, creating karma in the world that benefits you <laughs> and the world, if you will. So when I become, when I choose to be responsible for my life, the first thing that has to happen is I need to be willing to be honest no matter how much my honesty will be difficult. And by honest, I mean with myself. I need to tell the truth about my behavior. I need to be honest with myself. Again, as Shakespeare Buddha put it, to thine own self be true. Everything else follows from there. If you're not willing to be honest with yourself, okay, if you're not willing to at least tell yourself, you know, that thinking that nature of thinking really isn't going to benefit you or anyone else, no matter how righteous you may think you are in thinking that way. See, that's what I mean by being honest with ourselves. We need to tell the truth about those behaviors in our life that continue to cause us suffering and continue to cause others suffering and then do something about it. If we want to continue to fool ourselves, and, and con ourselves into believing, well, I'm, you know, this is a righteous act, if you will, then the next step is to be responsible for that. Okay? In Buddhism, there is a saying, lying is not wrong, and telling the truth is not right. It's just that lying causes suffering, and the truth sets you free. However, if you're going to lie, at least know that you're lying, okay? Don't turn it into some righteous behavior to produce some, you know, ideal, uh, you know, circumstance or situ situation. So if you're going to lie, at least be honest that you're lying. And that's what we mean by being honest with ourselves. Always be true to yourself, whether you are to anyone else. But it goes that a person who is really honest with themselves is usually honest with everyone else as well. You see, it follows, as Shakespeare Buddha said. So, to Ellen's question, how do I begin to detach? How do I begin to transform or complete my relationship with my parents? I begin by choosing to be responsible, choosing to be the cause in the matter in every circumstance, in every situation, whether I see that to be the case or not, and whether I understand that or not. You can't do this just because it's convenient, okay? And then other times not. You know, you can't do it just because, you know, it feels good and other times it doesn't. In the very beginning, you need to know, 
again, and if you've ever really been on any kind of authentic spiritual path, you know this, in the very beginning, it's difficult. It's uncomfortable, it's inconvenient. It's not easy, if you will. Confession never is, and it really is like that. We at least become the confessor and the one we are confessing to, if you will. We, we, we are honest with ourselves about it. Then we choose, we choose, and here's how we begin to shape and form that choosing in our life. Again, as I said earlier, we recognize that people will and do say and act in ways that harm us. And some of them will do it intentionally. We hold that as painful experiences. So the offense creates the pain. In meditation and mindfulness training, we literally train ourselves to take a position not at one or the other, if you will. You've heard me talk about this before. The way most of us do it is stimulus-response. Stimulus-response. Something happens to us out here and we react. What we don't see in that mechanical behavior is that there is another position. And that other position is a middle position. It is the space, if you will, that you become very familiar with in meditation. You become very familiar with it in meditation. It is the space between stimulus and response. And that space, we say in Buddhism, is the only place you ever really have free will. There is the only place you get to choose. You don't get to choose over here, and you don't get to choose over here. It is only in the middle you have free will. It is only in the middle where I choose my response to your behavior. And that is, again, formulated, cultivated, and then nurtured only in meditation practice. And by meditation, I mean everything from learning to train on the cushion and sit for hours and, uh, every day to learning to just stop. In those times of trouble, Mother Mary comes to me, speaking words of wisdom, let it be, let it be, let it be. So when the offense is thrown at us, at least my technique that I apply is to, again, notice it and take a deep breath. And as I exhale, let it be. Now you need to know that the story is running in my head at the same time. The story is running in my head at the same time. But if all I do is react to the offense, if all I do is react to it, then there is no free will there. And that behavior just simply, if you will, reinforces and supports old karma to repeat itself again and again. It is in that middle space, it is in that place that I train myself to literally stop and take a breath before acting, that I can begin to change my karma from the past. When all it is is stimulus, response, stimulus, react, stimulus, react. All that happens in that behavior is that the past karma becomes reinforced and that predestined to repeat itself again and again and again. 
So let's say all my life, every time someone said something to me a particular way, I reacted in the same way. That is true. That is true. So let's say that being true, the next time someone says the same thing to me, I choose to just let it be. I choose to not enter into the pattern, the learned behavior, the conditioning that uh, happens for me in early childhood. I choose not to respond with that pattern, but to take a moment to just stop. To take a moment to just stop. Any questions? Hi. Permission to speak. Yes. So, what I'm kind of hearing, but maybe not really knowing, is that uh, this baggage that we've been carrying around, that we've inherited from our parents' parenting, um, can also throw us into a life of resentment. Yes. And that resentment would definitely be our suffering. Resentment is suffering. Any form of resentment is what the Buddha would categorize in the column of suffering. When I am resentful, I am resentful for a reason, and that reason is always mine. And that personal reason to be resentful is always egocentric. See, when when you and I are coming from, when everyone in this room is coming from the place of identity, that is, I am Buddha, or I am a child of God, or I am a loving person, okay, that just my being is sufficient. When we are coming from any one of those identities, resentment doesn't have any room in our lives. There's nothing to resent. My life is complete just as it is. I don't need to resent you having this or you having that. You see? So it all begins and ends with this whole topic tonight, doesn't it? Our, identif- our identification. I've called that, I coined this about 22 years ago, what I call the principle of identity. Everything is about what I identify with, who I identify as for myself. When I identify myself as a complete and whole being, the whole world becomes less fearful to me. The whole world becomes less desirable to me. Okay? I may find beauty in it, but I find beauty in it for beauty's sake. You say, not for mine. See that? It's all about who you, who you think you are. You know, I, I began this uh, practice with, again, parenting Katie uh, not too long ago. And rather than, you know, using the language of my parents, wrong, bad, you know, you know be good, I talk about, you know, this is not who you are. Or there you are, there you are, there you are, or this is not who you are. Let's take a moment and look at that. This is not who you are. And she gets that. Okay. So uh, it's really about that. If we can begin to do that with ourselves, and again, if you've been reading anything I've ever written, listening to anything that I've ever talked about, 
again and again and again, I repeat over and over and over again, it's never about who anyone else is. It's about who you want to be from moment to moment. If you can wake up every morning and remember to ask yourself, who do I want to be today? And then be that that day, your life will begin to change. But you need to be that with integrity. And the word integrity means literally, right out of Webster's Dictionary, a strict adherence to a particular way of being. That's what the word integrity means. So when I say if you can be that with integrity, if you can be strict about being that every moment of the day, things will begin to change. Now, by things beginning to change, I need to say this to you because this is what, again, the ego hears when I say that. What the ego hears when I say that is that she's going to start being different finally. Or what the ego hears when I say that is that the world's going to get better. No, that's not what I mean. What I mean is that you will change. You will change to a place, you will move from a place where their behavior seems to be the source of everything for you. Did you hear what I just said? Our parents' behavior early on becomes the source of everything for us. You know, there's this wonderful experiment that took place, um, I think it was about 30 years ago. This, and I talk about this guy often, and I can never remember his name, and I'm so sorry I can't. But he was a child psychologist, a scientist in the field of child psychology. Had his own show for a while on public television. And whenever you saw this guy, he looked like a baby. He had the face of a baby, this guy. And he, he did uh, you know, clinical experiments with babies and children in, in an effort to better understand their behavior. And one of the experiments he did was he took about a dozen uh, uh, small babies crawling at the time. I guess they would be, they're not toddlers. What, when they're crawling, what do you call them? I don't know, whatever. Crawlers, yeah. (laughs) Crawlers. My father calls them ankle biters. So, all right, so crawlers, okay. So so he took a dozen parents and with their crawlers and put them in a room together and put cameras in the room and just simply observed what happened when when the child started to get up and try to walk and fell down. So they did this over and over again, and then they studied the film, and repeatedly, every single time, there was a common denominator with every one of those children, every single one without exception. Every time they fell, what was the first thing you think they did? Looked at their parents. And the second thing that happened was they discovered, depending on the parent's expression, the child either laughed or cried had nothing to do with falling. So then they took the parents out of the room, let the children be among themselves. They would get up, fall down, get up, fall down, and they just kept doing that. No problem, no problem. So early on in our lives, again, back to Ellen's term, we echo, we learn to echo our parents' reaction to life. We literally echo their reaction to things in life. This is why the technique of stopping is the only way we begin to transform that mechanical response to stimulus in our life. Because that response is a learned response. 
We learn to do that early on in childhood. We learn that behavior. I guarantee you, if we could find somebody from your early childhood and ask them, they will say, you behave that way ever since you were a kid. Okay? Yep. Okay? Because that's where we learned it. And we shape and reshape it to look cooler and a little more adult, you know, as we get older. But it's the same, same reaction. If we never learn to stop after the stimulus has been, you know, uh, launched at us, then that reaction continues to dominate our behavior. So we need to stop and change it. Now, in the beginning, it literally is a little more time-consuming because we need to stop and we find ourselves stuck in the story and we're analyzing and all of that. But when you do the real training of, that comes from, again, training yourself to be still on the cushion, for example, when all of these thoughts come and go and desire to do this, to move and all that, when, you, when you're training yourself that way, it becomes second nature eventually. So that today in my life, again, being a parent of a seven-year-old from the moment she was born, welcoming her into the world in the delivery room and everything, I've been with her ever since and what have you, I've literally watched myself not only learn how to parent, but bring again my Zen training and my Zen, uh, what I've learned as a monk, to my parenting. And a major piece of that has to do with maintaining that space for myself. Without that space, I become a threat to her health and well-being. You see, I just bring to her her grandfather, you see, otherwise. And that's not who I want to be with her. Any questions? Where is she? Yes. Are you going to speak? Uh-huh. Even though I'm not in training? Oh, yes, you are. <laughs> so am I. This is personal. Well, maybe it's too soon for you to know. And here's what I mean. I said a few moments ago, the transformation is a process. And it's a process no different than when the body is sick. When the body is sick, for example, when there is a boil on the skin, mm -hmm. okay, it's a process. If we try to fix it all at once, you know, we could uh, threaten the health of the skin or that mm -hmm. area of the body. Mm -hmm. So there's this process. And involved in the process, it, eventually the boil either breaks on its own or we break it and what comes out is distasteful. Mm -hmm. But that's distasteful part of the process is a necessary part of the process. So when I hear you talk about, you know, sometimes I say things that I don't mean, but that are hurt and may be hurtful, no, or, I, or even I'm if... I'm just expressing myself yeah. and... But you're saying it in... But your you said, reaction may not be positive what to you, what I'm Your saying. reaction or their yeah, reaction? the other person's reaction. Well, I have a... That, then that's an entirely different discussion. So let me go to that discussion for a moment. I am not responsible for your reaction. Your reaction to my stuff is your stuff. Okay? I am not responsible for your reaction. My reaction to your actions is my stuff. It's all my stuff. Often you hear me say things like, you don't even see me, or I don't even see you. Okay? 
until we have made this full transformation to what often is called enlightenment, for example, we, we see only reflections of the past. So as I've been saying all night, you know, let's say for the sake of this moment conversation, I'm looking at someone who is either like my mother or not like my mother. And my reaction is to that question. You know, like Shakespeare's to be or not to be, is she my mother or not my mother? And I am reacting to that, not to Ellen, okay? And that is true about almost everybody until they've done the work of liberating themselves from the past. Okay, so what? But again, you're you're asking the question out of the context of other people's reaction. Mm -hmm. Forget other people's reaction, and you'll know the answer. Mm. Okay. Okay. You're still doing what you learned in childhood, what you learned from your mother in childhood, and the example I and before you even told me the story about you and your mother. I told you the same story in the room with the babies and the parents. Mm -hmm. They were looking to their parents mm -hmm. to determine how they should react. Mm -hmm. If their parents had an upset, they would cry. Mm -hmm. That was their signal to cry. Not that they really felt the need to cry, mm -hmm. but they were looking to their parents to determine. You know that every time Katie falls, like off the bike or she's running around, what have you, she'll pick herself up real quick and say, I'm all right, I'm all right, mm -hmm. okay? So somewhere, certainly not here, I think at the other house, she's getting this like worried and upset thing and she's trying to protect herself from that, all right? But that's another story. Mm -hmm. But the point is, is that you need to see that you can't get, you will not get the answer to your question by looking at other people's faces, okay? Mm -hmm. I am not responsible for what Ellen thinks about me, and vice versa, mm -hmm. okay? Because <clears throat> all opinions, for example, are shaped and formed by my life's experience, by my life's experience, okay? And environment, you mentioned environment earlier. So this morning, I don't know if you got to read it yet, in, in my blog, I wrote about this. You know, we elect officials, who reflect our inner state of mind and being, okay? So, so when I am at peace, when I am happy and content with my life, I don't need somebody in power trying to get me more, better, and different. See what I'm saying? Well, this struggle, I think, has come about because of a new set of circumstances. So I'm trying, and it's brought up lots of questions within me, and I'm trying to figure out at this point. I thought I knew who I was before. And I'm not so sure I know who I am right now. So I have to, um, it has to evolve, I guess. It has to work its way out somehow. Yeah. The best place you can be is where you are right now. Okay? Because if you're listening, I said this earlier, the most difficult thing that we have to face in this process is the possibility that who I was before was an imposter. Wow. Okay? <laughs> That's my problem. All right? <laughs> and so, uh, you know, children have an easier time with this because they have no sense of time. Mm -hmm. Okay? So if they got to change now, no problem. <laughs> I got a whole lifetime ahead of me from their perspective. 
So just remember what I said. If you try to answer the question from the place of my facial expression, you're in trouble. Okay? So you need to get, I am not responsible for your reaction, you are not responsible for my reaction. Everyone's responsible for their own reaction. Okay? That's helpful. Thank yeah. you. That's why often, you know, you hear me say, you know, if you ever want to be a good teacher, you have to give up the vote. I say. And the only people the vote matters to is who? Politicians. And all they're concerned about is what? Staying in power. Not you. <laughs> so they'll say and do and become whatever they need for your vote. Thank you. That was great. Thank you. Anyone else? MBO? This discussion really making me think about my relationship with my mother and my brother's relationship with my mother. You know, my mother was always very giving, uh, compassionate, um, not in an overbearing way, but just always there in a very supporting way. But over the past two years, because of her dementia, um, her, her role has shifted, where now she wants 100% attention. She needs everything that she used to give in the past. Mm -hmm. and she wants all of it now. And she's really a stranger in what I see of my mother's body. Now, I get it. You know, I understand that some of the struggle that I was having early on was just my attachment to the way she used to be. But I can see what's going on with my brother. He still thinks that she's the same person and by dealing with her and treating her and talking to her the same way as 10 years ago, um, she's gonna change. So it's kind of interesting um, seeing both parts, how my mother has changed and how my brother, brother is not changing and I've kind of accepted the way this whole thing is playing out, I guess, for lack of a better word. And, and that example that Emio just shared with us can serve as a ground for learning about any relationship. You know, being a child, but also of a parent with dementia, uh, over the past nine years now, since she was diagnosed with it, my mother, um, you know, I've had the opportunity of coming into company with others, including Emyo, uh, in same situations. And his uh, example is common. It's not uncommon. There's always those members of the family who are seeing it from his brother's point of view and the others and so forth. And... But what came up for me while I was listening to Emyo was that's the difference between, uh, see, I, being, authenticity, and love are synonymous for me, okay? Only someone who is authentic can truly love anyone, as I see it. And here's what I mean. Uh, his brother, for example, and the members in my family that I've watched the same situation with, uh, is coming from a place of what 
they want their mother to be. You're saying, coming from a place of who they want her to be, and so forth. And in any relationship, when we take a look at that, that piece in any relationship, whether it's someone with dementia or someone not, there's going to be suffering in that relationship. Because relationship is the place we are called to give up our expectations and love the other person for who they are and where they are now. Not who we think they are, not who we think they should be, but who they are now and who they are every now, 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 now. Uh, those of you maybe in, in addition to Emio and I who have an experience with parents with dementia, uh, you know, in nine years I've watched my mother progressively become all kinds of different people. You know, you never know who she is from moment to moment and so forth. And, you know, uh, my father can be sometimes very much like Emio's brother. You know, she, this is not, this is not your mother. And I keep saying to him, yes, it is my mother. This is my mother, whether she's this way or that way. And my job is to love my mother in any way she is and wherever she is. And isn't that what love for anyone is about? Love for anyone, whether they are, you know, we'll say healthy mentally or not, Love for anyone, whether they are healthy physically or not, is loving them where they are. But again, as I said a moment ago, only a truly authentic person can do that because a truly authentic person is not looking for other people's opinions as to whether or not they are lovable. They love themselves exactly where they are from moment to moment. Because we can only give what we have. So if I don't love me, and my whole life is about, again, looking up to see other people's reactions to my behavior, which we start as crawlers. You know, we start there. That's where we begin to do it. If my whole self-image is dependent upon your facial expression towards me, your response to me, then I certainly have not learned to uh, love myself in a way that's necessary before I can love you. I cannot give you what I don't have. So this is why I often, you know, in relationship seminars, somewhere along the line, I, I create the, the story of, you know, the first date. And I tell women, you know, when you go with him on the first date, don't listen to all the promises of what he will do. Listen to his excuses, they're saying. And if he has more than two, and those two have to be, I was so sick I couldn't even get out of bed, or I'm dead, don't stay with them, okay? Because again, today, most people, male or females, promises are equal to their excuses, okay? So when you take that scenario compared to what I said a moment ago, if we're still behaving like we did as children, then we should not expect anything else. We should not expect anything else. And that's what most crises happen. You know, I thought you would, I thought you were, and all of that. So that's why, you know, uh, in the, in the uh, domain of, you know, relationships, more and more as I get older, 
Uh, and I remember as a small child watching this in my mother's family and watching this in uh, uh, my father's family. They had this thing called courting, where you like saw the person for a long time before you even thought of marriage. And there was a reason for that. And it makes a lot of sense to me. Because you get to find out everything first and not so surprised after the honeymoon's over. Because that's when the relationship really starts. People say, oh, the wedding was beautiful and they went on this beautiful honeymoon. And they're so in love. Of course they are. <laughs> We're all in love in Disneyland, you know? <laughs> that's what it's designed for, you know? <laughs> you, you can't help but be in love in Disneyland, you know? Where do you get home, you know? So I often say to people, real love shows up after the honeymoon, or it doesn't. And that's entirely dependent on the work you've done on the relationship before the marriage. And, if you, and most people don't do any work anymore. And then they wonder why it happens the way it does. Any other questions? Completing our relationships with our parent is quintessential for moving on. There is no possibility for a future of any kind other than the past until we complete our relationship with our parents, until we own our dependence upon their behavior. And if we're you know, still young enough and they're still around and we're still interacting with them, recognizing how our re relationship with them is always about, you know, you know, getting their approval, getting their okayness. Mom, what do you think about this? Dad, what do you think about that? And so forth. Uh, until we complete all of that, uh, there is no possibility of an independent future. And an independent future is what we have all been seeking from the very beginning. We did not come into the world to be dependent. And nature proves this. When you look at the animal world, there is this period in which the mother and father, back to Maisie's uh, sharing, there is this period where biologically it is imperative that the child is dependent. But there are many, many examples in the animal world where not only that gets cut somewhere along the line, but they push you right out the nest. <laughs> it's time for you to go. <laughs> go, go, don't come back. And if you try to come back into some nest, they will kill you. So in all of nature, Somewhere along the line, nature says you were created to be who you are. You were not created to be your parents. You were not created to be the culture you live in. You were not created to be the society you live in. You owe nothing to any of these. Nothing to any of these uh, relationships except your authenticity. And that authenticity does not become possible until we first recognize our attachment to these, again, identities with cross purposes in our past and we begin to work uh, to bring about detaching from those identities. Roshi, do you think there were parents throughout time that let kids off the hook? Or, were, or have we just, has there just been millennium, millennium, millennium of, of parents um, putting that, you know, listen, you're going to be a doctor, you're going to be a this, and you're, this is the way you are. I mean, that, 
because there's a lot of that pressure comes from the parents to yeah. the child. Yeah, yeah. I I think the evidence in, with the people in those fields that are better capable of responding to your question that I've talked with, the evidence is that this all starts at civilization. When we start creating civilizations, when we set up nations and cities and towns and identities with those civilizations, that's when, again, we, we start to see that change. Back in the time when man was a nomad in the desert and the caveman, uh, it was it, indigenous people. No, no, no. They they right. they expect that part of the process is for the child to walk out to of the village one whatever. day. Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah, yeah. We see that only with the modernization, the civilization, and then when the industrial age comes, then it like it like shoots forward a thousand percent because what came with civilization. And what came with industrialization, it compounded what came with civilization was, again, identification with the nation, you know. For example, one of the problems in our country today is that we have people who, again, whether it's education or something else, who don't know the difference between patriotism and nationalism, okay? What most people who are out there complaining about the people not standing up for the national anthem, they are nationalists. When we look at the definition of patriotism as it not only is defined in the dictionary, but as it was lived by the founders of this country, they would have all been on their knees for that song, you know, okay? So again, and where does that come from? It comes from my identity with the clan whether that clan is uh, an ethical clan, you know, a, um, uh, not a, a um, whether that clan's Italian, German. Yeah, ethnic, yeah, yeah. Ethnic clan, political clan, religious clan, yeah. all of that. Anywhere where you find an emphasis on, you know, again, I wrote this this morning on my blog. I never wanted to be a Catholic. I never wanted to be a Buddhist. I never wanted to be any of those things, okay? All of that in my lifetime has been a means of expressing myself through them, okay? So I never found my identity in any of that, if you will. Um, and so whenever, again, whatever we identify with, we attach to. Whatever we attach to, attaches to us, and be, we become it. Right. You know? So early on in the indigenous uh, tribes and the caveman and, and the nomads, there wasn't any of that. You know, you, you, you went, you went. Right. Mm -hmm. And I guess that was a certain, I mean, later in the industrial age, that was a, a method of survival too. You wanted your children. Sure. If you did this, you will survive. Right. You go to school and become this, you'll right. be able to right. make it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. A person's entire life became defined by what they did. Right. By what they did. Right. You were what you did. You were what, you know, clan you belonged to. Right. You know? Right. You know. And uh, none of those or have anything to do with our true identity. And we, and we wonder why we're so, yeah. 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 I mean, 
you take any wild animal and you put it in a cage and you corner it to where it cannot move about freely, it will go crazy and try to harm you. So when they ask, why is there war? Why is there crime? It has nothing to do with bad people and good people. It has to do with, you know, Ellen talks about the environment. Yes, it has to do with the environment we have created for people. When we lock people into specific identities and insist that, what do you think is going to happen? What's happened? Now we're seeing it all come to a boil. This is, this is not something that happened overnight. We're seeing going on now. We have met the Creator, and He is us. I love, I love that Star Trek movie. The, 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 it was one of the first ones. So that was what that was all about, you know. The, uh, what was it, Vemer? The, the, the name of the, the machine was in search of the Creator. So there was that, anybody ever, see, remember that movie? Anybody else see it beside me, you know? <laughs> Vemer, they called it. Vemer, Vemer, the machine kept we want the Creator. And this thing, whatever it was before they realized what it was, was consuming everything and destroying everything. And the, it's, it's kind of like droid came onto the ship and Vemer, Vemer, and it turned out to be a satellite called Voyager 1. They just didn't have the middle letters. And the whole thing, and Spock, and that, uh, Kirk says this, you know, on their thing, you know, Captain, he's like, we have met the Creator, and He is us. And Spock obviously said, apparently, Captain. <laughs> and what did they have to do in order to, uh, to stop the destruction? Disconnect from the Creator. That's what they had to do. Detach. <laughs> That's how it works. Star Trek was definitely prophets. <laughs> Any other questions? So we got a lot of work to do. And in the days ahead, we will revisit this because authentic spirituality is about this. It's about recognizing that somewhere in the course of our existence, we end up forgetting, as the, as the Buddhist story goes, who and what we truly are. And we literally enter into what the Buddha described, a kind of amnesic state of consciousness, this dream or illusion. So often, again, another thing that is so sadly, uh, dis, uh, uh, dis, um, so sadly incorrectly taught, when Buddhism says it's all an illusion, you know, when people say, well, the Buddha taught this is all an illusion, he wasn't talking about this. He was talking about our perception of life, that our perception is the illusion. How we see the world is the illusion. Not that this is an illusion. Come over here, let me show you how much this is an illusion. You know? You know, he was saying that our perception is an illusion because our perception, back to again my uh, interaction with Ellen, you know, how, what I'm looking at when I look at Ellen, if I haven't done the work, is my past. And I'm reacting to that, you see. When I complete the business of my past, then I will see Ellen for who she truly is, even if she doesn't see who she is, and so forth. 
So that is why, again, my reaction to you, my response to you, my behavior with you is all about what I see and hear. You know, in Buddhism, there is, you know, there's also the notion that, you know, when the Buddha sat under that Bodhi tree and had his enlightenment, what he said was, all beings are Buddha. And what he, wanted, what he wanted us to understand was that when you truly realize who you are, you will then realize who everyone is. Because it's all the same thing. It's all the same thing. So that is why the work that you do with your life in spiritual training and practice is quintessential. Quintessential. And, you know, as I again reiterated in my... Uh, uh, latest writing uh, if we do not find the peace within ourselves we are never going to find it in the world wake up no one is going to bring peace on earth you need to bring it on in, in yourself first so imagine if everybody was about that business and everybody achieved that there it is, peace on earth it's not going to happen any other way. Any other way. As, as frightening as the notion is of what could happen on November 2nd, the bottom line is on November 3rd, it still comes back to you and me. And that's my story and I'm sticking to it. Thank you for the privilege of being with you tonight. Thank you for coming out. Look what everybody else missed. <laughs> so they're all over at a Halloween party across the road, I think, because you can hear it. Was it Bray I'm sorry? Bray the psychologist? No, he, he even had a baby-like name. I wish, wish I could. Yeah. You're talking about the uh, guy who did the experiment with the babies? Yeah, the psychologist. I remember Bray used to be on no, I don't remember that as the name. It'll come to me. I'll Google it. <laughs> <laughs>